Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast about how our political institutions are failing us and ways to fix them. I'm James Walner, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute and a lecturer at Clemson University. And I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America and a lecturer at Johns Hopkins University. Today we have a very special treat for you all. It's just Lee and I. Uh, Julia's not with us. She'll be back next week. But today I wanted to talk about with Lee, I wanted to talk about a, a very important topic, and that is voting, civic participation in our democratic republic. And, and this is a great topic for us and a great topic for Lee uh, because he's one of the organizers of a, of a recent public statement uh, pushing the Senate to pass the Freedom to Vote Act and criticizing Democrats for their commitment to preserving the filibuster. So Lee, why don't you just kick us off and tell us one, what is this Freedom to Vote Act? And then two, why isn't it passing? And three, why we should care? Well, those are great questions. So the Freedom to Vote Act is the big uh, democracy reform legislation that Democrats have been working on all year. Uh, which uh, would basically push back against some of the ways that state legislatures have been making it harder to vote, add some fairness in uh, redistricting, transparency in uh, campaign finance, and also push back against some of the uh, ways in which our election administration is fundamentally being undermined. So, I, I mean, I, I view it as, a, as an incredibly important, even you know, existential piece of, of legislation that, you know, basically safeguards some of the foundations of our democracy, free and fair elections, which I, I think are, are really under threat by a number of state legislatures. And you know, this is Congress's role in preserving our democracy. I mean, we, we don't have a uh, democracy if uh, we, we don't have free and fair elections. I think there, there's a real risk, as we write in the letter, of the, the U.S. tipping into an extended period of minority rule, which meets nobody's definition of democracy, in which a, a large portion of, of the electorate is you know, effectively disenfranchised. Uh, so I, I think it is incredibly important for the Senate to pass this legislation. You know, I think there's a couple of senators who have expressed concerns about passing it with a bare majority. Name names, Lee. Let's name some names. The, uh, publicly, those senators are uh, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. We, we know them well, the target of, of much attention. And you know, I, I, I think there are certainly ways that the filibuster could be preserved but reformed. I mean, the, the idea that you can now filibuster a bill without even lifting a finger or holding the floor, you know, I mean, that, that just seems, you know, frankly insane. Uh, I mean, uh, there's no uh, legislative body in the world in which one uh, representative, uh, you know, can, can put a hold on things. There's no legislature in the world in which a minority of lawmakers can just, without even debating a bill, can just say, you know, we, 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 we oppose it. So it's, it's, you know, that, that's it. And, you know, I mean, this is, to me, this is incredibly important, you know, as preserving, as I said, the basic foundations of our democracy. So that that's you know one why why I helped to to organize this letter and you know why a, a wide range of scholars 
uh, signed on to this. A lot of people who have studied democratic collapse uh, in, in other countries, people who are close watchers of, uh, of American democracy. And you know, I, I think this is a, a very serious moment for our democracy and the, the failure to act in this moment and pass the damn bill, uh, I think, could be a, a tipping point in which future historians look back and say, well, what the hell are they doing? So there's a lot of places I want to go with this, uh, and I want to kind of push you a little bit. But And the first thing I'll say for our listeners is that we're going to put this in the show notes, the uh, the public statement, so that you will have it and you will have uh, links to it and to articles about it. And But before we kind of dive in, and I definitely want to get to the filibuster, I want to get to this kind of critique of the Senate rules. And I think you're right. There is no legislature in the world where one legislator, one lawmaker has veto power over uh, over what that body does. And that includes the United States Senate. But before we get to that point, I, I, want, to, I want to touch on this idea about uh, democratic reform and the state of our kind of policy. And the question of, you know, and look back a little bit, because when we think about it, yes, some rules can be better than others, but the rules have always been a contested area and they always tilt the playing field one way or the other. But what I want to talk about, though, is where these rules have been made throughout history. And the fact that the Congress isn't the prime player in this space, it hasn't been the prime player in this space up until very recently, right? I mean, for the vast majority of American history, um, you know, electoral reform, electoral policies were determined by at the local and, and state levels and also by political parties and, and regulating their elections and, and how we voted changed over time. And it's only in the 20th century, really, that we see the federal government really get involved in voting in a major way. Is that is that correct? Am I wrong on that or? James, you're wrong. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the, 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 uh, the post-Reconstruction era, uh, I mean, Congress passed a bunch of uh, voting bills and, and two constitutional amendments, you know, the, the 14th and 15th Amendment, you know, as well as a bunch of, of bills in, ensuring the, the right to vote in the South, particularly. I mean, the 1842 Apportionment Act is another great example in which Congress mandated the use of, of single-member districts when states were, were shifting to statewide. So, I mean, Congress, I, I think that's a, it's a myth that you know, Congress has been, you know, it, it's a uniquely modern phenomenon. I mean, also all, all of the voting rights legislation of the 60s. I mean, I, I mean, that's maybe, maybe that you're suggesting that's the 20th century. But I mean, Congress has a long, long history, I mean, of changing the the way that states vote. I mean, it's in the Constitution. Article 1, Section 4 gives Congress very wide latitude uh, to determine the rules of its own elections. Now, I mean, States for for their own state legislatures, that's that's one thing. But for for federal elections, Congress has incredibly strong powers that that Congress has used throughout the history of the United States. No, of course, I think what I'm just saying it's not that it's the the only player in the space, but. You know, yes, there has been a growth through constitutional amendments that grant Congress the power to legislate to make these amendments, um, you know, kind of enforceable. That gives Congress power there. The, intro the introduction of the secret ballot in the beginning of the 20th century with the progressive reforms that really allows for the federal government to kind of step in and begin to regulate elections in a major way that it didn't do before. So yes, there is a growth there. But I guess what I'm asking is that in the past, 
And I'm trying to get to this sense of existential dread. And of course, there's a lot of stuff in the past that is not great, is not good, that we don't like, and we're glad it's over. Um, and I will certainly say, and I want to preface this, uh, I should have prefaced this conversation by pointing out as a conservative, I'm a bit of an outlier in this space. There is a strain of conservative thought that thinks that virtue is absolutely key to making uh, um, kind of a self-government work. And to be virtuous, it has to be hard and you have to go and do things. And it just, I don't think voting should be hard. I think it should be easy. I think we should encourage people to participate in our politics. Uh, that's generally my view. I think it brings more disagreement, more conflict, which is the secret sauce that I see. But ultimately, America has progressed as a polity throughout its history for other reasons than Congress. And so before we get to the kind of the actual substance here, I want to kind of touch on this notion of existential dread. How did we get to where we are today if Congress didn't have the power to just legislate us into the promised land? Do, do, does that make sense? Yeah, what, what, I don't know what you, what you mean by the promised land. I mean, I'm not suggesting that, that democracy should be utopia. I'm just suggesting that uh, there should be a la level playing field for all voters and, and all parties. And you know, uh, this is, I mean, certainly the, the history of voting in the U.S. has been always contentious. Uh, and you know, there's been plenty of partisan shenanigans throughout the, the history of the U.S. and you know, many periods in which I think that the U.S. wouldn't meet the modern definition of, of, of a democracy. So if we want to have an argument about what are the, the what, what, a, what a modern democracy should look like, you know, that's one thing if we want to have an argument about the, the historical precedent of Congress, acting to make sure federal elections are free and fair. Uh, that's another thing. I mean, as I said, you can go throughout the history. I mean, you know, also, you know, going going back to the to the 12th Amendment, which changed how the, the Electoral College uh, operates. I mean, there have been various, many attempts to change the Electoral College as well, how, how states should allocate their votes. But that's a great, I mean, the 12th Amendment's a great example of a reform that has become kind of, kind of, second nature to us today, but at the time was pushed for, you know, legitimate reasons, but also because the Jeffersonian Republicans wanted to kind of consolidate their their hold on, on power and they wanted to make it very difficult for Federalists to prevail in the future. I mean, it was a it was kind of a self-interested reform and, and reforms can be good and self-interested. I'm not disagreeing there, but I guess my point is, you know, women's suffrage granted at the state level prior to the national level, uh, giving all white property, uh, non-property owning men all free, like the right to vote was started at the state level. Expanding uh, the vote for presidential electors was something that the states did. And then they began to mimic each other. And you begin to see that. You see this time and time again. And so I'm wondering is if what's the cost? I'm, I just want to push you a little bit on this. And what's the cost of going down this road towards a one-size-fits-all federal approach dictated by Congress uh, towards conducting our elections. I mean, yes, you, there may be some bad things that we address, but uh, are there also good things that we would not have realized otherwise? I mean, women aren't getting the right to vote in the Western states if Congress at the time has authority to do this, right? Obviously, the, the Constitution has since been amended to give them that, to make it, a, to safeguard that right. But do you see where I'm going with this? I mean, there's a reason why we have kind of a federal approach to our kind of conducting our elections and letting states 
and local um, jurisdictions and parties determine how they want to conduct their elections in their jurisdictions, I think, versus a kind of one size fits all approach, which maybe I'm just oversimplifying this. Am I or what do you tell me I'm wrong? Tell me tell me why I'm wrong. I know I'm wrong. Of, of course you're wrong. So, I mean, we have to make a distinction here between local jurisdictions have control over local elections. You know, states can decide the rules of their own state elections, and the federal government gets to, to decide the rules of elections to Congress and the Senate and, and presidency. And that's how it always has been. Uh yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly true that uh, hold on, let me states... just. Am I wrong on that? I could be wrong. I want to ask a clarifying question. Um, so, the states, the the way it's worded is that states, the the regulations for say the electorate, aren't they related to the popularly elected lower house of that state or the popularly elected assembly of the state legislature? Sorry, I'm not. I'm not sure. I, I I mean, states can set their own rules for elections to the state legislature, but Congress has has jurisdiction over federal elections. But don't those rules also then help to influence what happens with regard to the electorate that elects members of Congress? Be more specific. So, if we think about who gets to vote for a member of the House, right? The Constitution originally stipulates that it's the it's the same electorate that votes for the popularly elected assembly in the state. Is that so? I mean, I mean, by, so, I mean, by, there's a relation. There's, I mean, they're not separate entirely. They're kind of, they're, they're kind of. It's like a very close knit relationship. Yeah, um, and it's not one of a hierarchy. It's one of two distinct spheres or two distinct jurisdictions that are cohabitating and periodically overlap, and. I think that's the kind of notion of federalism that I come into this with. And I think that our kind of election system is is premised on that. Is that? I, I, I mean, is it premised on it or is it just how it, it historically evolved? Right. I mean, federalism was, you know, something that emerged from the fact that, that you had 13 distinct colonies that came together to form a union and, and the price of that was, was, you know, leaving a lot of powers to the states. But over the course of 230 years, I guess two, not quite at 230 years, but uh, over the course of over you know two two centuries, politics has has changed and evolved, and politics has become much more national, and the control of national government has been become much more consequential, and what happens in Washington affects states everywhere. Uh, and so much of our politics, so much of uh, has become nationalized. So the idea that states should, you know, that, that we should rely on federalism for national elections just just doesn't make any sense to me, given where we are in our political development. Well, it should states not have the right to determine how to allocate their presidential electors, for instance. You have this national popular vote compact. You and I see, don't see eye to eye on the, the case uh, against the Electoral College. But one of the ways around that, minor, uh, short of a constitutional amendment, is to have states determine that they're going to allocate their presidential electors via according to who wins the national vote. Well, that's clearly a state making a kind of a, a, a their own judgment call and a federal election. I mean, is that? I mean, obviously, you would not like the electoral college to to be there. I, I would think, based on our past conversations, but 
just looking at that one example, I mean, is this an instance where the states shouldn't have that authority to do that because it's a national election? Or should we let states pick and choose and decide how they want to allocate their electors as they see fit? I mean, I or think- Or as their people see fit? I mean, I mean, I think Congress should should legislate that, you know, states allocate their electors proportionally. But I mean, honestly, I'm a skeptic of the National Popular Vote Compact. I, I think it's an incredible waste of time and energy because I, I don't see how uh, it will ever achieve the support of states totaling 270 uh, electoral college votes. And at the point that it did, it would eventually mean it was obsolete because Democrats would have uh, so much uh, dominance in the country that you wouldn't need it. I mean, I, I, you know, personally, I think Congress should legislate and, you know, require states to allocate uh, their electoral college votes uh, proportionally based on population. But I mean, there's also some skepticism that the that the National Popular Vote Compact would be unconstitutional, although I don't entirely understand the constitutional arguments around it. But I think if if it's you know, a case of national elections, I think we should have standards that are consistent across the entire country. Again, states can do whatever they want for their gubernatorial elections, but the president is a national figure and Congress should, you know, regulate the elections for national offices. It's as simple as that. So I think I'm just, I want to kind of try to distill our differences on this kind of question more generally to three. And we've been talking about the, the nature of the threat. And I think the, the disagreement here is, you know, obviously there's a real sense of existential foreboding. And I commend you and the other people for 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 acting, even if I disagree with with the nature of the threat um, to to head off a threat that you see, because obviously, you know, civic action is something that we don't have enough of in this nation. I think that we need more of it, and I think we need more people who think that politics is important and take to the political sphere to try to persuade their fellow citizens of the of the kind of the correctness of their view, if you will. But the nature of the threat, I think, is the first big disagreement that we've been talking about simply because, you know, obviously women's suffrage was granted at the state level before the federal level, right? You see the the fact that you don't have to be a, a property owner state level before the federal level. You, know, you see it a democratic expansion of in the Jacksonian era of presidential electors at the state level before the federal level. And this goes on and on and on. And yes, towards the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century, we see a whole series of reforms, constitutional amendments that the Congress begins to come into the space. But in these main, main areas, they're, they're kind of lagging behind these advances at the state level. So I guess my, you know, and so I guess the big disagreement on this, on the nature of the threat is that if Congress doesn't have the the authority or the political will to to act in this space, is it like I I tend to disagree that it's like we're like one minute to midnight or whatever, because I mean, we've been one minute to midnight throughout American history. And it seems like we have these kind of reforms. The electorate has gotten bigger. Uh, the pie that, you know, or the number of people who get to participate has grown. Uh, not everybody gets to participate now, but it's a lot bigger today than it was when we first got started in this business. And that isn't necessarily because Congress had the authority to kind of legislate in this space. But obviously we can comment on that, but I also want to talk about, you know, the second disagreement. 
Well, let's 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 stick with the first. So, w- would you then say that Congress acted improperly in passing the Voting Rights Acts of of sixty four and sixty five? No, I don't think so. Okay, I, I, well, that was national that. legislation when when giving states the freedom to decide who gets to vote resulted in widespread disenfranchisement of a significant percentage of the population. So, there are moments in which it might be appropriate for states. To, to act and innovate. But the, but the question is, it, what was happening in terms of voter regulation in Jim Crow South and segregation was it was a blatant violation of the Constitution. It was a blatant violation of statutes that were on the books. Then why didn't the Supreme Court act? Well, it's, you know, and so the Supreme Court, you know, I can't speak to what the Supreme Court does and doesn't do, but Congress reacted and gave the Attorney General authority to kind of help people challenged us to kind of give, it wasn't changing the laws per se. It was basically helping to enforce the current laws and ensuring that all jurisdictions would abide by those laws. The things that were happening in the South were absolutely absurd. They were absolutely absurd, but they were clearly, I mean, it would be like, you know, you get to go, you go to register to vote and all of a sudden the, there are the, the voter registers, uh, the office are on lunch break for the next 10 years. Like that kind of crap. Right, That's the of kind course. of stuff that was happening. Okay. So we're not talking about changing the laws per se. What we're saying is ensuring that the current laws on the books are being honored by all. That's all. And I think that's a big cry from like, say, voter ID or other types of uh, kind of voter regulations today. I mean, we can disagree on that. So I think that there's a big, you know, it's there's some kind of base foundational things that all states should agree on. And then there's this idea that the Congress should get to decide how they do it all. And, and more than just the base foundational type things. And I think that's the kind of the key disagreement be- between us. I don't know. Okay. Well, I, I mean, I, I, in, in my assessment, what Republicans are doing at the state legislatures and what they're doing to election administration and what they're you know, doing with extremely aggressive gerrymandering is all undermining the basic foundation of democracy, which is that uh, all voters should count equally and all parties should have an equal chance at victory and that we should not be uh, under uh, and that the party that wins more votes should win more seats in the electorate and uh, election restrictions should not target voters based on their party or their the color of their skin. And uh, what, what I see uh, in Republican-controlled legislatures is legislation that cuts directly against that. And I think that Congress has an important responsibility to uh, ensure that the basic conditions of democracy are met. And to me, what's happening in a number of state legislatures is these basic conditions of democracy are not being met. Let's be specific. What are the, give me some examples of these bills. You know, I think in some cases we may agree and some we may disagree, but what are, what are some examples of the actions that are, you're referring to in the state legislatures? I mean, I, I think the uh, Texas, Georgia, Florida, I mean, they're all uh, attempting to curtail methods of voting that are used more by Democrats than, than Republicans. Um, you know, there are state legislatures are giving themselves powers to basically decide how to overturn elections. Uh, I mean, the, the amount of gerrymandering, I think, is is clear. And I mean, it's true, Democratic states are doing some gerrymandering, too. We're in a, an escalating fight over gerrymandering. Um, that, that, is, that is terrible. So I think the, the intent here 
uh, is, I think, clearly transparent is to make it harder for Democrats to win elections. So the first thing I want to say is it's really Henry mandering because Patrick Henry was the first person, to my knowledge, in a federal election to draw a congressional district to for the explicit purposes of making a, one outcome more likely than another. And that was to ensure that James Madison was defeated and his buddy James Monroe was uh, one. And obviously that didn't work. Madison won. So maybe that's why we don't call it Henry mandering, but it's Henry mandering, uh, not gerrymandering per se. Right. But well, <laughs> somebody's got it, you know, and we've got a whole I, I episode mean, on that. I mean, sure, which is, which is, you know, I mean, re- the single member district has been problematic from the very beginning. So, you know, we got a whole episode on that and it's a great topic, but I, I want to, when you know, we say powers to decide kind of who wins elections. I mean, we're talking about, and I'm not an expert on all of the actual specific legislation, but the state legislatures um, get to make laws uh, based on, you know, how state officers like, say, secretaries of state uh, act, what their duties are, what their responsibilities are, what appeal procedures are. Those laws may be good and bad, but the the, act, the fact that they're making those laws isn't in and of itself, I think, the same kind of threat. But I want to talk about methods of voting. Uh, you know, methods of voting is a great segue into our our second, and you can come back and disagree with me if you too, but it's a great way. Our second disagreement, one's on the nature of the threat. The second one is on kind of this assumption that if we had different laws, we would have more participation and more turnout. And that's certainly something I wish we had. But we can change methods of voting all we want. We can do motor voter. We can do um, same day registration, but we don't see a sustained increase in voter participation over time with these different reforms. And maybe we will in the future, but it seems like you might get a blip here and there, then it goes back down. And we haven't gotten back to the levels of voter participation that we saw in the 19th century when they were up above 80% for decades and 70% for decades from the 1840s through the turn of the 20th century. And that participation takes a nosedive precisely when the federal government gets involved and begins to standardize elections and in many respects, they're doing a good thing. They're trying to undermine Tammany Hall and kind of corrupt party politics. The progressive reformers are coming from a good place in this regard. But when they pass things like, you know, you can't, you have to register in advance. Um, you have to be a citizen. This is something that progressive reformers uh, pushed. The states couldn't allow non-citizens to vote, which some states did back then. Um, you couldn't, you know, all of a sudden when you get the Congress coming in, and you're in starting to regulate in a major way, you see a, a decline in voter participation. And, and we haven't gotten back. I mean, we can do vote by mail. We can do same-day registration. We can do all this stuff. But is it really going to increase voter participation? Is it going to is it going to help protect against the threat if we can agree on that threat, which we don't? But if we can, is is Congress really going to be able to to solve this problem for us? Well, I, I mean, James, you're, you're totally changing the subject here. I mean, we, we can talk about the, the progressive reforms, which, which I mean, th- those were those were mostly those were all state reforms that made it harder for people to vote. Now, I mean, I, I agree that some of the progressive reforms were misguided, but you know, I mean, the, the pol- politics of the late 19th century was a uh, very different types of type of politics. It was you know, uh, o- only men were voting. It was you know, parties were were very patronage org oriented um and so there was a a, a a way in which you know the, the it was almost like competing armies going going to the polls 
And again, you know, Congress was very involved in setting the the, the rules for for voting in the in the late nineteenth century. You know, from from the end of you know from eighteen sixty five up through eighteen ninety, Congress was extremely involved in setting the rules of voting during a time in which there was high participation. But you know, whether or not it's easier or harder to vote, how that affects participation is different from whether different by making certain methods harder or by restricting certain methods of voting, whether there's a clear attempt to make it harder for certain partisans or certain types of voters to vote. So yeah, let's go on that though. So what's what's a method and who does it make it harder to vote? I mean, let's get really specific here and, and concrete. And maybe you can persuade me because I don't want to make it harder for people to vote. I mean, hell, I don't want to go stand in line for eight hours to wait to vote either. It's just like, I'm probably not going to do it. I want to get, make it as easy as possible on me. But the question is, what's the result going to be? What's the result going to, I mean, so- Of these yeah, reforms. I, I, I don't know. I mean, if you want to make it easy to vote, you know, I mean, there's a bunch of things you could do. Make mail-in voting, you know, u- universal, create lots of early voting. But hold on. If I'm a Republican state legislator and I want to make it hard for my opponents to vote, what, you know, one, I have to know who my opponents are, but then two, like what method would I use? To, I mean, pick a state, pick a kind of example. I, I, I don't know. You're in Georgia. You know, you want to make it harder for for Democrats to vote. You know, Democrats vote by mail more. You you re- you make it harder to to vote by mail. Dem- you know, you you, you uh, have less funding for uh, voting booths in in urban areas. Uh, you, you know, you make it a crime to hand out water or, or any sort of food to people who are standing in line. So, but are, is the solution to that the same solution that saw voter participation uh, skyrocket through 70 and 80% through most of American, or at least half of American history? Which is if you have, if the state legislature says, we don't want voting by mail for whatever reason, assuming that they're not also disenfranchising their own supporters as well. I mean, voter ID is a great example of this, that, you know, it's the assumption is that everybody who benefits from voter ID is a Republican and everybody who doesn't is a Democrat. I'm not sure I, I, I entirely buy that. But I, I mean, I, I mean, I think it's more complicated than that, but I agree that it's, that's uh, if I've got if I've got four billion dollars and I'm a Democrat and I think this is absurd, what am I going to do? I'm going to get a bus and I'm going to drive around and I'm going to pick people up and I'm going to drive them to the polls. I'm going to do everything I can within the law to help educate people and get them to vote. And then in the process, I'll be creating lifelong voters for the Democratic Party. And I will use this law, which may be done constitutionally as a foil to help establish those connections, if you will. I mean, that's how parties like work for a, for a large part of American history. And but we don't see that. It's like the assumption is the only solution is this one size fits all con- congressional regulation of uh, how we conduct our elections. When in reality, that's not, we've never had a one size fits all approach. And there have been other ways that this has happened. There have been other ways that people have demanded access to the electoral process, right? I mean, that's, and there's, and there may even be better solutions that don't have some of the downsides of the kind of uh, kind of a one size fits all regulation. I mean, I don't. Maybe there's a reason to, we shouldn't have vote by mail. Maybe there's legitimate reasons. Maybe there's not. But that's something that gets to be decided in the the political sphere in the individual states, right? I, I mean, what are the legitimate reasons? Uh, I don't know. When I lived in D.C., I didn't see mail for like three weeks at one point. Like it, literally, like the three weeks, my neighbor's like, "Where's our mail?" All right. Well, <laughs> so okay. 
I'm not disagreeing so much with you on the substance, although I think we do disagree there. What I guess I'm disagreeing with you on is, one, how much of a problem is this really? And two, if it is a problem, are there better ways or alternative ways to solve it that, that, I, that could also be more feasible? Uh, short of congressional action, short of national action. I mean, you, 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 you tell me. I mean, so what? What you're proposing is, if I if I hear you correctly, you're saying, well, it's okay for the Georgia state legislature to uh, create obstacles for Democratic constituencies to vote because Democrats can just spend more money and and mobilize people and get them to the polls. No, I don't assume that. I think we need to. Re- reject the assumption that any kind of voter regulation that doesn't benefit Democrats is an is a conscious ad- obstacle, only an obstacle with no other policy reasons behind it. Why are Republicans, and I think we should, should wrap up soon, but the question is, you know, if, if these, if all of this was so important and so urgent, um, you know, why is this happening now after Republicans have decided that election integrity is this huge problem after this whole you know narrative that Trump had the election stolen from him where you know uh, state legislatures and uh, state legislators are are falling over themselves to to defend the big lie and in both public and uh, both private and sometimes public saying that their goal is to help Republicans win. Like, I mean, maybe there are legitimate reasons, but the way in which they're talking about it and the timing sure seems like what they're trying to do is just make it harder for Democrats to win elections. I mean, and and if you want to defend that as the prerogative of state legislatures to whichever party wins the previous election gets to decide the rules to make it easier for them to stay in power, there is a, a, a long tradition of that in American politics, certainly. Uh, I, I would not defend it, but that's certainly something that state legislatures did from like, you know, 1790 to, to 1840. There was, a, there was a, an awful lot of that happening. Right. And so, look. I just and I want to end on the Senate and the filibuster briefly, but you know I just want to say for the record, the election in my opinion wasn't stolen. It wasn't stolen, and I think one of the things that makes it virtually impossible to steal an election at the presidential level is precisely the fact that it's not a one size fits all national organized centrally conducted elections regime. You have thousands of precincts and thousands of municipalities in each state, and you have all these different states, and you have all these different people involved, and you have all of these different players in all of this different kind of like that's how do you coordinate that? How do you pull it off? How do you then like keep it a secret? Like that's it's just you can't. I mean, maybe you could steal the 1960 election because it just so happens it comes down to Texas and Lyndon Johnson's on the ticket, and lo and behold, he's a powerful Texas politician. And he finds a trunk load of ballots on the Rio Grande. Okay, that's a fluke. That doesn't happen very often. The idea that we can steal a national election, I think, is almost, it's its ludicrous in my opinion, precisely because we don't have a one-size-fits-all election regime. And look, I don't, I can't speak to the motivations for why people are doing it. I'm trying to separate the kind of policy purposes and the kind of institutional arguments. And I'm trying to think more institutionally right now. And the question is, you know, we, we're making a lot of assumptions about what is the, the right and the wrong elections thing. I mean, should people that own property 
be allowed to vote. Yeah, that's everybody should be allowed to vote regardless if they own property. We've made that decision. That was made in the political realm. That was a debate that people had and it was done at the state level. Like eventually we've expanded the electorate so that if you are, everybody gets treated the same regardless if you're a woman or if you're a man, regardless if you own property. Those are all things that we've decided. But like residency requirements, like what what's the right residency requirement? What's the right like registration approach? Should it be same day registration or should you have uh, or should you be required to register in advance? Those questions, the outcome of those debates are going to benefit one party or the other party. They always will at any given point in time. And in that sense, there it's not that one's more or less correct. And so I think we need to get away from this idea that like the Repu- any kind of thing that would change kind of methods of voting that benefit Democrats is done explicitly to penalize Democrats and is therefore not good, not right, not legitimate. Well, well, this is why this is why we should have more than two parties so that election rules aren't aren't zero sum. Yet another reason why the two party system is terrible for democracy. Um, But on, on your point about how can anybody steal a national election? I mean, precisely because uh, elections come down to a few states uh, because of the Electoral College, you know, as well as also control of the Senate can hinge on a few swing states. Like, you know, you don't have to, to coordinate everywhere. You just have to coordinate in a few states that that are going to be pivotal to change the, the votes. And, you know, I mean, this is precisely what... Uh, so you have to know in advance what those states are. Well, I, I, I can tell you, like- I can tell you what those states are going to be. There's a handful of swing states that are going to be pivotal in every election because we most states are lopsided for one party or the other. Again, problem of the of the two party system. And you have to and there's states have thousands of precincts themselves. Um, the, the elections are conducted and in, in all these all these different cooks are in the kitchen. Right, right, no, wait, 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 but wait, wait, wait. But what I'm saying is that by making it harder by reducing the turnout of of one party, you know, I mean, you, you can you know pass a. I mean, Arizona is a big state. Florida is a big state. Georgia is a big state. Texas is a big state. I mean, Texas is probably still not a swing state, although who knows. But you know, by by depressing turnout among the other party by creating obstacles, you don't have to to to, to reduce the other party's votes by that much, and and you win the state. It's not about. It's not about. I, I'm not talking about precincts stealing votes or, or conducting fraud. In the last two minutes here, I just want to briefly talk about the Senate and the reason why this isn't passing. So if we don't agree on the nature of the threat, we don't agree that this is the best way to boost voter participation and involvement in politics. It's not about boosting participation. It's about treating all voters fairly. I, you know, I, I don't, my goal is not to, to, to boost participation through these reforms. Well, but I mean, what is treating vote, treating voters fairly? You pass a law that you know says this is the way we all vote. Okay, but uh, one and the the assumption is that state legislators know exactly who's going to not benefit from that law and who is, and that they're therefore passing that law. And look, this is an argument in the scholarship right now that p- people say this is what parties do. They try to depress turnout on the other side. But you know, our coalitions are a lot more kind of messy than that. It's a lot harder, I think, to decide. Um, and to pinpoint with with great accuracy, I know a lot of people are going to say I'm wrong on this, but I don't. Th- You're wrong. <laughs> I just don't. I don't. I don't think that our legislators have that. But with regard to the Senate, look, the the fact is that Joe Manchin doesn't have a veto. The fact that the Senate can't agree on a motion to proceed to this uh, legislation to debate it is because they the senators don't want to do it. They're allowing Manchin to to say no. 
they're allowing other Republicans to say no. I mean, you can you don't have to invoke cloture to overcome a filibuster to adopt a motion to proceed. If you did, for like literally half of the Senate's history, it never would have done anything, but it did lots of things. You don't have to use cloture. You can use rule 19, which is the two speech rule, the talking filibuster rule. The sinners don't do it. Why? Because it takes a lot of effort. They don't want to do it. And I think this gets to your underlying point about your critique of the two-party system. Our parties, the partisan duopoly, they don't want like kind of month-long like voting day. Like they want to get out the vote effort the weekend before the election because that's how they know how to win. Like our partisan duopoly wants elections to be regulated in a way that benefits them. Period, and I think that that's I think that's a greater kind of uh, kind of concern. It seems to me than one party versus the other right now in, in our politics. I mean, Democrats could force this issue if they wanted to. They could force it. They choose not to. Why do they choose not to? Well, now they can blame it on the dynamic duo and the Republicans, and then they can run on it, and then they can win more elections, and then they can also not force the issue. Why are they giving Manchin a veto if he doesn't have one under the Senate rules? Well, talk to Chuck Schumer, but. But hopefully you'll join me in arguing for more political parties. You know, my, the jury's out on that. I support you. I'm, I'm going to do it. Let's, this is going to be a great experiment. I'm also with you on that we need more people involved in politics. We need more voter involvement, more voter participation in politics. I just think that we need to be careful about how we go about trying to ensure that that happens, because I think the inverse could happen all too uh, readily. But I could be wrong on that, of course, and I, I suspect that you think I am. But I do want to commend you for 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 stepping into the public sphere on this this issue, for 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 pushing back and for trying to 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 affect change in, in this in this way. Well, thank you. We can agree on that. Boom. Boom. There you go. Well, this has been another episode of Politics in Question. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute, and our producers are Shannon Lynch and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.